Why is that funny? It's a new series in Hebrews 11. What? Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be spending 11 weeks in Hebrews chapter 11. And in the seat in front of you, you've got a little bookmark about that. And we gave you this bookmark to kind of remind you of the lessons of faith we'll be learning over the next few weeks. So take that out from the seat in front of you. Stick that in, that, in your Bible and use it over the next few months as a reminder of the faith lessons that we'll be learning here in Hebrews chapter 11. This series will be called The Life of Faith. And this morning we're going to be talking about trust. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we want to say, first of all, this morning that we trust you. We believe you, God, to be trustworthy. In spite of all that we see, Lord, we're facing difficult economic times. We're a nation that is at war. The nation of Israel is at war this morning. There's radical things happening all around the world, Lord, on a macro level and a micro level. And yet we say in the midst of it that we trust you, that we really do believe that Jesus Christ, you are on the throne, that you are good and you are right, that you rule and you reign, that you came to deal with sin and you're coming to judge. This gives us great joy because we would not want to entrust judgment to anyone other than you, Jesus, for you alone are faithful and true. And so our hearts are encouraged this morning as we come into this house of worship to realize that, God, you are trustworthy. And we ask that this morning that you'd speak to us about trust, that you begin to work in us a new life of faith through this series, that over the next 11 weeks, you would encourage us, Lord, you would strengthen us, you would build us, you would mature us, you would refine us, you would purge out of our hearts things that ought not to be there. You'd fortify into us strong faith. You'd strengthen our foundation. You would cause us to grow and to blossom and to bloom in our love affair with you. So Lord, we ask now that you'd meet us as we get into your word and that you would please anoint me to communicate your truth. God, I humble myself before you and your church. And you know me, Lord. So have mercy on me and anoint me for this ministry that every word that comes from these lips would be profitable for the furtherance of your kingdom and the glory of your name and the building up of your church. We ask that together in Jesus' name. Amen. So 11 weeks in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 has often throughout the years been called the hall of faith. An obvious variation on the hall of fame, which we are all familiar with. And it's an understandable name, the hall of faith, that variation on the hall of fame. Because what we have here are reminders, stories, vignettes of men and women who had great faith at pivotal moments in their lives. Men and women who had great faith at pivotal moments. But they weren't necessarily great people. They were normal people, as a matter of fact. All these people that we'll study over the next few weeks in Hebrews 11 were normal people. 90% of them were lay people. That is to say, if they were going to church, they'd be sitting in the seats. They were people just like you and me. They had good days and they had bad days. 
And for their great faith, it causes them to be included in this chapter. They all, almost without exception, had lapses of faith as well. And if the whole of all their lives were examined from Scripture, they would be just as famous for their failures as they are for their faith. Yes, they've made the hall of fame, but if the whole of their life was taken and certain parts thereof, they also could be included in the hall of shame if there were one. You see, they were ordinary people. They were just like you and me. They weren't great people per se, but they were people who had great moments of faith because they had in common a great God. And we have the same great God. And faith has an object, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Normal people, great moments of faith only because they knew they had, they followed, and they worshiped a great God. And so we'll walk through their stories starting next week, one by one. We'll spend several weeks studying them. And uh, we have an incredibly talented artist here in the church, Neil Perro, who did that painting of Jesus walking on the water out there and all the paintings in the classrooms. And as we do each character, he'll have a bigger than life-size painting up here on the stage of each character to sort of visually stimulate us about the story that we'll be studying. But we're not going to call this series the Hall of Faith. We're not going to call it that. This is why. Because when we think Hall of Faith, it makes us think Hall of Fame. And when we think Hall of Fame, we think exceptional extraordinary, way beyond average, hall of fame. I could never do that. I could never be that. And so I really think it's a bad name, the traditional one that's been given to it, the hall of fame. We're going to call this series, as I said previously, the life of faith. Because these were real people with real lives, with real problems, just like you and me. And faith is a real life issue. You and I make faith decisions every single day of our life. And as we study the faith decisions that these men and women made, we'll be encouraged to continue to grow in faith and to press on toward maturity. Now, that should be a goal that you set right here at the outset. That by the end of this series, you should have matured in your faith to one degree or another. We are warned early on in the book of Hebrews in chapter 6, verse 12, that we are not to be sluggish as it pertains to growing, but imitators of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So when it comes to our Christian growth, we shouldn't be sluggish. We should be fervent. And one of the ways that we do that is by imitating the great men and women of faith here in the hall of faith. And so we'll be studying their lives and we'll be imitating their great faith. Men like Abraham, Enoch, and Noah. Women like Sarah, Rahab. People like Moses, and Gideon, and David. It will help us to understand how to grow in our faith if we have a grasp on what faith is. And we have a definition, or really a description of faith, here in verse 1. Verse 1 says this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I teach from the New American Standard Bible, and, and I love it. It's a literal and a good translation, but I, for the life of me, can't make sense of what that says. 
Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so I often in my studies go to different translations, uh, which can be very helpful to help me to understand. So here's a good one. The NIV makes good sense on this one. It says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. A definition or a description of faith. The New Living Translation also does an excellent job. It says, faith is the confidence that, we, that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. So confidence, assurance. The contemporary English version does well. It says, faith makes us sure of what we hope for and gives us proof of what we cannot see. The New Century Version says faith means being sure of things we hope for and knowing that something is real even if we do not see it. That's good. Knowing something is real even if we don't see it. And the message, I'm not the biggest fan of the message, I'm not the biggest enemy of the message, uh, but it does well with this verse. It says the fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, this faith, is the firm foundation, keyword under everything that makes life worth living. It's our handle on what we can't see. That helps us to understand it a little bit. It's beginning to unfold. Put very simply, faith is trust. Get that. Put very simply, when we're talking about faith in the context of this chapter, we're talking about trust. Now, it's a particular sort of trust, this faith here in Hebrews 11. It is not trust that's based on knowledge. Follow me now, be careful with this. It's trust, but it's not trust that is based nearly on knowledge. That's not to say that it's brainless or blind. It's not. And that's not to say that it doesn't involve any knowledge at all. It does. It's just that the primary basis for this trust, this faith, is not so much what you know, but rather what God has said. That's the issue. This trust is not so much based on what you know, but what God has said. And it involves, very clearly from verse 1, things that have not yet happened. Speaking of hope, and things which we cannot see. And so because they haven't happened, and because you cannot see them, it's hard to base this trust on knowledge. Because how much knowledge do you really have if you haven't seen them and they haven't happened? You see, so this trust has got to be based on what God has said, not what you know empirically, or what you have seen with your eyes. And what faith does is it acts according to the revelation of God's character and his track record and his written word. Faith responds to God's character, God's track record, and God's written word. And what faith does for us practically is it makes the future immediate and impactful, and it makes the unseen visible and tangible. Future truths concerning our Christian faith in the work of God become immediate and impactful in our daily living. And unseen realities become visible and tangible through the eyes of faith. 
Take Adam and Eve, for example. We just started reading the Bible again together this year. And just a few days into it, you've already had these great faith stories. And a couple real key faith failures, Adam and Eve and Abel and Cain and Noah and Abraham in today's reading, some great faith stories, just a few days, four days into our one-year Bible reading. But think of Adam and Eve. And if we begin to think of faith as trust, and we begin to think about what their trust was to be based on. You see, Adam and Eve didn't really have any knowledge per se. I mean, God created them as adults, so they had a certain amount of knowledge, but they were literally new. I mean, they were new, so what the heck did they know? I had a friend that I used to spend a lot of time with, a pastor friend, and um, he's actually in Israel right now. He's Jewish. And... Uh, a wonderful believer in Jesus Christ. And when I would do something stupid, which was on a regular basis when we were hanging out, he would say to me, what are you, new? All the time in his little Jewish, what are you, new? You know, in other words, you don't know anything. You're brand new. Well, Adam and Eve were literally new. What did they know? Not much. But they were in relationship with God and they had God's word. Now, it is upon that foundation that their trust in God was to be made. You see, they didn't know beings. They were brand new, literally. But they had a relationship with God, and they had the word of God. And in God's economy, in God's mind, that should have been enough for them to trust him. God said, of all the trees in the garden, you can eat. Except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from this tree you shall not eat. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, what did they know? They didn't know anything. So if they were going to trust that, the only thing they could base that on was relationship and what God said. That's faith. That's trust. And what we have in the garden is rebellion, yes, but maybe more correctly said, distrust, mistrust, a failure to trust. They didn't trust God. They knew him, they had a relationship, and they had his word. That should have been enough for a trusting relationship and for them to do the right thing. Now, it says in our verse, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It could be translated the substance of things hoped for. That word in the Greek, in this context, has the idea of foundation. I told you already that was a key word. Assurance or substance is the foundation of our Christian hope. So faith is, to Christianity, what a concrete foundation is to a house. It gives us confidence that we will stand. It gives us confidence that we are secure. It gives us confidence that we can remain. Faith is the foundation of the Christian life. And for any foundation to be meaningful, we have to know what it's made of. Right? It really matters what your foundation is made of. There's a lot of foundations, but what is yours made of? That makes all the difference in the world. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talked about two different sort of foundations. Someone who would build their house on sand and someone that might build their house on the rock. And he said, don't build your house on sand because when the storms come, it's going to erode and your house is going to fall. Build your house on the rock. Jesus was talking about foundations. And he was using that to illustrate a spiritual truth that our lives are to be built upon the foundation of the word of God, which is eternal and never changes. As opposed to whims and fads and deceitful doctrines which come and go. 
But he was using the common idea among humanity that you need to have a sure foundation. What is your foundation made of? And so in the same way, for faith to be meaningful, it has to have an object, a sure foundation. It has to have an object. What we are not talking about is faith in faith itself. Now that's a silliness that has beset much of global Christianity. Faith and faith itself. Sort of the name it and claim it crowd, the blab it and grab it group. Faith and faith itself. If I just believe enough, it'll happen. As if faith were some imperceivable or intangible, powerful force that made God do things. That's not what faith is. We're not talking about having faith in faith itself. Nor are we talking about the common mantra among even secular humanity that says, you just got to have faith, bro. You've heard that one all the time. There was a song written about it, wasn't there? You just got to have faith. You just got to have faith. You hear it all the time. Well, that's utter meaninglessness. That's meaningless. You just got to have faith. Faith in what? Faith to be meaningful at all has got to have an object. We're not talking about faith and faith. I'm not talking about ambiguous faith. And the object of Christian faith is the person of Jesus Christ. Let's get it right. The object, the foundation, the focus of our faith is Jesus Christ. Now, the power behind any promise is the person that made that promise. You know this, right? Because there's certain people in your life that will say, oh, I promise, and it means nothing to you whatsoever. It was a promise to be sure. They said the magic word, I promise. But it was meaningless to you because of the person behind that promise. See, the person behind any promise is the power of that promise. There are other people in your life that when they say, I promise, you know you can take it to the bank. The power behind the promises of Christianity is the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, all these things that the Bible speaks of, that our faith speaks of, can be held in confidence because the power behind the promise is the person of Jesus Christ. And tell me, when has he ever failed? When has he ever not made good on his word? When has he not come through? He's been absolutely faithful to the generations. You may have dramas in your life that didn't work out the way that you wanted them to, but don't blame that on God. You make your own messes. And he warned us because of sin that in this world we would have trouble. But he is faithful. He is absolutely faithful. And his track record is sure. And so the person behind the promises of God is Jesus Christ. And 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God in him are yes and amen to the glory of God. I like the way the New Living Translation says it. For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes and through Christ with our amen, which means yes, and ascends to God for his glory. So when we talk about the future hope, when we talk about faith, we're talking about Jesus we are putting our faith, our hope, all in Jesus. Now, when we do examine evidence 
that is tangible, that is knowable, that is perceivable, that is historical or literary or archaeological or paleontological or I mispronounce that, but whatever. You know, when we see these various evidences concerning the Christian faith, we find that faith in Jesus Christ is both reasonable and founded. It's not blind. It's not brainless. Faith in Jesus Christ is both reasonable and founded. And we're not talking about a mere feeling. We're not talking about what the Mormons claim. They claim they know their faith is true because they have the burning in the bosom. We're not talking about any feeling. We're not talking about a hunch. We're not talking about having a pull yourself up by the bootstraps mentality. It's not a, oh, I hope so sort of thing. Faith in Jesus Christ is both founded and reasonable. It is neither brainless nor sentimental, nor is it merely intellectual sent to certain doctrines. Faith in Jesus Christ is a solid conviction resting on God's words that makes the future present and the invisible seen with the eyes of faith. So it says faith is the assurance or the substance, the foundation of things hoped for, future events. And the rest of the verse says the conviction of things not seen. The conviction of things not seen. Invisible realities. Our faith not only involves the future, it involves the invisible realm, the spiritual realm. Things that are true and sure and happening, though not visible to our eyes. Now, the problem with the original recipients of the letter of Hebrews and why the letter was written is that they were caught up in the here and now, in the tangible and the immediate in the circumstance, in the pressing. They were wholly being consumed by those things. They were caught up in those things. Those things were driving their emotions. Those things were affecting and causing their faith to waver. They were totally caught up in the here and now. Many of you are in that same situation. For you, it is all about what is immediate, intangible, circumstantial, pressing, You see, but the Bible says that faith is a conviction of things not seen. That word conviction in the Greek means proof or evidence. Proof or evidence of things not seen. Now that's sort of a, to a certain degree, kind of an oxymoron, kind of a strange dichotomy. Proof of something you cannot see. The world says seen is believing. We hear that all the time. Show me. Seen is believing. Let me see it. I'll believe it when I see it. The world says that. But the Bible says, hold on, wait a minute. There's something more than meets the eye. In fact, it says, the righteous shall walk by faith and not by sight. And so the foundation of Christian living is that it is beyond the visceral, beyond the tangible, beyond the immediate. There is a spiritual, unseen, though potent, impactful reality. And this conviction of things not seen means a certain resolve of certainty. What we are to be convinced about are spiritual truths that the Bible declares 
though we just simply don't see him. For example, the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. We've discovered in the book of Hebrews that that is an ongoing ministry, the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ on our behalf and for us. Now, I don't see it. Do you see it? If you see it, I'm going to think you're a little bit weird, but I'll talk to you. We don't see it per se. We don't see Jesus doing the priestly ministry, but the Bible declares that it's ongoing, that it's happening, that it impacts our life, that he ever lives to make intercession for us, that he bears the wounds before the Father. We don't see it, but we sure do believe it. And we experience the temporal benefits of it, as well as the eternal benefits. It affects the here and now. That when I mess up, when I sin, and I do more than you want me to, and more than I want to, Jesus is pleading the cause. He's standing before the Father. He's bearing the wounds. He ever lives to make intercession to testify that the price for my sins were dealt with at the cross. Now, that's a truth. We believe that, amen? We don't see it. Our access to God in prayer, that's an absolute truth. The book of Hebrews is spoken about that, that we have access, that we can enter into the Holy of Holies. There's no veil. There's nothing we can see. We're not going to the ark anymore. There's not the cherubim and the mercy seat. There's not the Shekinah glory made manifest there in Jerusalem. We can't see it, but we absolutely believe it. And we rely upon it daily. I mean, I hope you do, Christian. I daily rely upon the ability to approach the throne of grace with boldness that I might receive mercy and help in the time of need. That I could go and be in the presence of God to gain new strength, to develop character, and to simply enjoy Him. Can't see it, but I count on it. It impacts my daily life. When I do it, it's good. When I miss it, ooh. The full pardon of sins. You can't see it, but we believe it. The Bible declares that we have a conviction of things not seen, that our sins really have been moved as as far as the east is from the west, buried in the deepest sea, dealt with once and for all, that he chooses to remember them no more. You can't see them. They're not in a wheelbarrow that was taken to a dump and dumped out and burnt there. But we believe it. That God is in control and that he's on the throne. An unseen reality. An unseen reality. It is absolutely sure. I have the conviction, the conviction that God is on the throne. I don't always see it in the circumstances of the world. We're a nation at war. We're in a troubled economy. Broken families are an epidemic. Perversion is ruling in our country. Israel's at war today. When I look at the situation in the world, I don't always see God on the throne. But by golly, the word of God tells me that he's on the throne. And I've read the end of the book. I cheated. (laughs) I read the end of the book. Guess what? It comes out okay. He really is on the throne. He really is ruling and reigning and working. Don't give up. The story's not over yet. You see, none of these things can we see, but we believe them. That is faith. That is trust. It's not blind. 
It's not brainless. It's actually founded and reasonable according to the historical person of Jesus Christ. But it's simply not based on mere knowledge because things pertaining to the future and things in the unseen, unseen realm, we don't have clear and exact knowledge of. But we have trust in the character of God, the work of God, and the word of God. And that affects the way that we live. It really affects us when we think about our future hope. Faith is the assurance, the substance of things hoped for, the foundation of our hope. You know, to those who were in Jerusalem that day when Pontius Pilate gave the command to go ahead and crucify Jesus, I imagine that there were many in Jerusalem that day. I, I know from Scripture that there were many who followed Jesus that thought that was the end of it. It looked as though the religious ones who were simply wrong had won. It looked as though Rome had won. Pontius Pilate had given the command. It looked as though to those who believed that Jesus was the Son of God that perhaps even the devil had won. But you see, the verdict of the future reversed the verdict of the moment. It seemed in the moment, in the temporal, in the immediate, that all things were lost. Some even left town and were heading for Emmaus, crestfallen, heartbroken. But the verdict of the future, that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for the sins of the world and would three days rise again, victorious over sin, death, and the devil, the verdict of the future reversed the verdict of the moment. That is why it's so important for Christians that we have an eye, a heart that is set on hope. The future hope that we have in God of glorification, of the rapture of the church, of his second coming, of his just judgment, his establishment of the millennial kingdom, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, God tabernacling among his people. We hold these things to be absolute truths of which we are convinced and they help life to make sense. And the verdict of the future overwhelms and reverses the verdict of the moment what I see with my eyes. You see, that's faith. That's trust. And that affects the way that we live. You see, we make decisions in the here and now according to that hope, those future trusts. We forego, because of what is promised, the momentary passing pleasures of sin for a weightier, eternal reward. That's what we do as Christians. We do certain things because of the future. We don't do other things because of the future. We really believe that there's a future in Christ that is better. We believe in a heavenly reward and in a just judgment. So that affects what we do and what we don't do. And the world would say, well, why should I refuse the pleasure of the moment for an uncertain future? That's what's so cool about the Bible. It's prophetic in nature. Over 25% of it at the time of writing, prophetic in nature. It reveals to us the future. So in no way to the Christian in the large Splay of things is the future unknown. It's absolutely certain because it's in the hands of God. 
and read the end of the book if you're not quite clear. He wins. I mean, God really wins in the person of Jesus Christ. And that affects then, as I said, the way that we live now. And so faith is a dynamic certainty about what God has said, what God has done, and what God has promised. But what verse 3 tells us is that faith also affects what we believe about the past. Look at verse 3. It says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So not only does faith affect the unseen realm presently for us, the future becomes immediate, but faith affects what we believe about past events. Here it says, by faith, we believe that God created the heavens and the earth. I believe that. Do you believe that? I believe that. Why? How do I believe that? I believe that by faith. Now, nobody was there to witness it, huh? You know, next time somebody says, well, you know, it was this and that and the other, it was aliens or it was, which the smartest people in the world, smartest people in the world right now seem to believe it, aliens. Did you guys see that movie? Uh, what was that one? Uh, you know that one with that guy? <laughs> the one about uh, evolution and uh, expelled. Did you guys see that movie Expelled? Oh, you idiots. You got to see that movie. If you didn't see that movie, I say that so lovingly. You got to see Expelled. It's unbelievable. Richard Dawkins, supposed to be like the smartest guy in the world, at the end of the movie is just undone when pressed on where did life come from. He realizes it has to come from somewhere and being pushed on it, he finally says, well, I, I think probably aliens. These are the smartest people that secularism has to offer society. This is ridiculous. Aliens, we came from aliens. Okay, okay, Richie boy. Well, where the aliens come from? I mean, I'll grant you, maybe there's aliens. Where did they come from? Aliens. It's just ridiculous. There was one other brainiac guy. When, when he said, okay, so evolution. Okay, so this primordial goo. And, you know, how did that start? How did life start? And he said, life started, we think, you know, we're not sure, but we think on, on the back of crystals. And Ben Stein was like, okay, wait a minute. Life started on the back of crystals? Yeah, there were crystals and they had backs and life started on there. <laughs> you see, when you reject the Bible, you get stupid real quick. <laughs> That's what Romans 1 says. It says that. It does. But we believe things about the past, such as creation, by faith, because no one was present to observe creation. God even said to Job in Job 38, 4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, Joby? But there is reason to believe, of course. There is abundant evidence for intelligent design, for the creation account of Genesis. But faith is still required because creation was unseen. But what we do have, again, is the written word. So this faith is not based merely on knowledge. It is based on what God has said. We have the written word. And genuine faith then produces genuine knowledge. 
that God created the worlds. They were prepared by the word of God. And there in verse 3, the Greek word there is rhema for word. Not logos, the normal one, but rhema. It means spoken word. But the written word tells us that God's spoken word brought all things into existence. And the Christian comes with the eyes of faith and says, I wasn't there, neither were you, but God said it, I believe it. That's faith. It's not brainless, it's not blind. It's actually reasonable and founded, and yet it is faith. It's based on the character of God, the track record of God, and what God has said. So faith has to do with what we believe about the past, the present, and the future, and this affects the way that we live and the way that we die. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, speaking of these men and women of faith in the preceding verses that we'll get to in the next few weeks, is a summary statement. It says, all these died in faith. They died in a state of trusting. All these died in faith without receiving the promises Speaking ultimately of the promise of Messiah, because all these things that God had them involved in were foreshadows of the Messiah. So they died in trust of what God was doing, what God had said, without receiving the promises, but having seen them, the eyes of faith, and having welcomed them from a distance, faith, having seen the unseen, welcomed from a distance of future events, acting upon them in the immediate and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Having seen them, their faith made the invisible visible. Welcomed them from a distance. Their faith made the future a present reality. And so they confessed that they were strangers on earth. They lived as members of God's kingdom. Their trust in God transcended what is tangible, visible, and visceral. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith, trust in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Philippians 3, 20 through 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus. Is that descriptive of you eagerly waiting for a Savior? It is to be of every Christian. I hope it is. Our citizenship, our primary allegiance, obligation, and place of belonging is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. So he's encouraging his original audience to keep the faith by telling them that the great fathers and mothers of the faith that went before died in faith. They died trusting, even though they didn't necessarily see it all in their lifetime. Now, we're in real trouble if we don't trust because we have seen the coming of Jesus Christ. We live on the other side of history. They looked forward to it with the eyes of faith. We look back to it with the eyes of faith and forward to it with the eyes of faith. You see? And so he's telling them the forefathers came and they persevered in faith. They died in faith. They laid hold of the invisible with the eyes of faith. They acted on the future by living a life of faith. 
And you have now experienced the salvation of Jesus Christ, his cross and his resurrection. You had better live by faith. Verse 14 says, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had an opportunity to return. Because remember now, what this is speaking of is the fact that these Hebrew Christians were being tempted to return to Judaism. And he's saying all these great stories of faith were people coming out of some place. In your Bible reading today, you'll, you'll read of Abraham being called out of Ur of the Chaldees by God. He had to leave it all behind. He had to go. Noah had to leave some things behind. So many of these great stories of faith are talking about God taking us to new places. And what he's saying here is that their mind was always set in and stuck on the past they'd be in trouble. He's telling them, leave those things behind and press on. He told them in Hebrews 6.1, let us press on toward maturity. It's an action word, press on. It's active, growing in your faith. Philippians 3.13 and 14, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Christian, are you at the beginning of 2009 pressing on? Are you just maintaining the status quo? Are you stuck in a rut? Your faith has brought you thus far, but maturity requires faith and faith will mature you. And the Lord has brought you thus far, but the Lord wants to do this and that and bring you here and there. It's going to require faith to follow Jesus into these things in the next season of your life. And so we've got to take stock. Are we trusting? Faith is trust. Are we trusting? Verse 16 says, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God and he has prepared a city for them. So we need to weigh out our hearts here as we get ready to close. Are your hearts set on the here and now or are they set on eternity? Colossians chapter three, verses one through three tells us to have our hearts and our minds set on the things above where Christ is. They were looking forward to what God would do because he said he would do those things. And we need to be people of that faith. In fact, verse six, and here's where we close, says this. Hebrews 11, 6 says, And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, very simple, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Without faith, without trust, it is impossible to please God. And, and the story, the, the main point of Hebrews 11 is that all these people exercising moments of great faith, even though they had numerous failures, were approved by God because of their faith. Verse 2 says it. For by it, speaking of faith, the men of old gained approval or obtained a testimony with God. They pleased God. Again, if you were to take the whole of their lives, they could just as easily be in the hall of shame. They were just like you and me. For every great moment of faith, there were several failures in faith. And yet, because they had faith at pivotal times, they gained approval with God. They pleased the Lord simply by trusting Him. Are you trusting God 
with the areas of your life. And when faith and trust really matter is when adversity and challenges happen in our lives. And then we experience the temptation not to trust. And we often didn't even know it was there until adversity and challenges come around. And then also we discover that there was sometimes this real deep-seated distrust, mistrust, lack of trust toward God. That's exactly what Eve and Adam discovered in the garden. They should have, could have trusted because of relationship and what God said. But in the moment, in the face of deception, they failed to trust. True Bible faith is confident obedience to God's word in spite of circumstances and consequences. And that was the message to the Hebrews. Their circumstances were they were being threatened for believing Jesus Christ. Some of them in the future would have their lives taken from them. And what the author is saying is continue to trust Jesus Christ no matter what it costs. That's the crux of it. No matter what it costs, Jesus is trustworthy. No matter how difficult it is, no matter how much the opposition continue to trust Jesus Christ. And for them, it was huge. It would cost them property and position and reputation and even their very lives. And yet the word was continue to trust. You see, faith operates very simply. Here it is. God speaks we listen. We trust him, and so we obey him. Very simple. That's how faith works. God speaks, we listen. We trust him, so we obey him. And when it matters, is in the face of adversity, challenges, difficulties, and hard circumstances. So no matter how difficult, uncomfortable, or what the consequences, we need to obey. The outcome may be unknown and the obstacle's large, but we trust his ways and his methods and do what is good and right. That's the life of faith. And our circumstances are not like the circumstances of the first century recipients of the letter, but they are very real nonetheless. And we make faith decisions every single day. Do I trust God with my finances? faith decision? Am I listening to what God says about tithing, about stewardship? That's a faith decision. Do I trust God with my sexuality? That's a faith decision. To be pure, to be monogamous. Trusting God with our sexuality is a faith decision. Do I trust God with my recreation? Are we listening to what God says about sobriety? That's a faith decision that we make daily. Do I trust God with my business? Am I listening to what the Bible has to say about honesty and integrity and financial stewardship? As much to say. Do I trust God with my relationships? Am I listening to what the Bible has to say about reconciliation, forgiveness, extending mercy and grace? Those are faith decisions. Do I trust God with my heart? Am I hearing what the Bible has to say about healing? 
sanctification. We make those decisions every day. Finances, sexuality, recreation, business, relationships, our own hearts. Each one of these is a faith issue. This is the life of faith. And what the Christian endeavors to do is to trust God. And trusting God pleases God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so you need to determine who you're trying to please in this lifetime. You see, if it's God, you're going to make good faith decisions. If it's you or just another person, you're going to make some bad decisions. Trusting is a key issue. And Jesus Christ is trustworthy. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we would say, as the disciples said to you one time, we believe, but help our unbelief. We trust, but help our lack of trust. In all these areas of our lives, Lord, the faith issues, the faith decisions that we make every day, Lord, would you help us? Would you have mercy on us? Would you empower us with the person of the Holy Spirit that we might live a life that is pleasing to you? Thank you that we're already accepted before you because of the blood of Jesus Christ, but we want to run to please you. We're stoked to be accepted. We want to trust you in big things and in little things. And so work in our hearts, Lord. Deal with the junk. Teach our hearts to obey. Teach us to trust. Lord, give unto us a childlike faith. This is, Daddy, I believe you. Yes, Dad. Yes, Father. Prayer team is to your right and your left if you need help. Communion is here.